Hey, Smoking Baby Gun listeners, Nancy Rommelman here, uh, starting a new little interview series for you and kicking it off with Sophie Scott, who is a British cognizant neuroscientist and director of the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience, University College in London. She has been researching the human brain since the 1990s, and she has a new little book out called The Brain. 10 Things You Should Know, Explore the Wonders of Our Most Extraordinary Organ. The book is absolutely gorgeous, really, really smart, really quick to read. I learned a lot. It was fun, and it was really fun talking to her. Um, We didn't just talk about the brain. We talked about, well, I guess we are centering it on the brain, but a couple things like such as there's really no such thing as memory, and also my favorite phrase from the book, which is about synaptic exuberance. So thanks for joining us. And without further ado, Professor Sophie Scott. Good morning, everyone. Uh, It is Nancy Rommelman here coming to you. I'm coming to you from um, upstate New York, but I I have someone who's actually someplace where it's even hotter than it is where I am. Can you tell me, Sophie Scott, where you are? I'm actually currently in Las Vegas. Why are you in Las Vegas, Sophie Scott? Um, I came over to the U.S. for a conference up in Tahoe and... um, because it's, you know, an environmental holocaust to travel so much on planes. Um, I brought my my partner and our son here and we had a holiday in Tahoe and then we we're extending the holiday down into Las Vegas because my son really, really, really likes Las Vegas and he hasn't been for years. That that makes one of us. Um, so I should introduce <laughs> who we are. Um, we are here with Sophie Scott. Sophie Scott is the author of a beautiful book that she very, very kindly sent me called The Brain, 10 Things You Should Know, Explore the Wonders of Your Most Extraordinary Organ. So two things about this book. First of all, it's my favorite size book. It's super, it's like really sexy, like five by seven, right? You can throw it in your purse. It's hardcover. It's got this beautiful iridescent um, blue cover. What I also really love about your book is that I assumed I was going to be too stupid to understand it, um, and I wasn't. Um, and, and I don't think that has anything to do with me. I think that has to do with you. So, Sophie Scott, welcome. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wanted to write this book? Um, I'm a I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and what that basically means is I'm a psychologist who's interested in brains. So. Um, Neuroscience is a whole world where you can spend your entire career just studying molecules found in one bit of one brain cell. Cognitive neuroscientists like me are interested in thinking about the brain at a level where you can kind of relate it to behavior. So um, how you could understand people's experiences by thinking about the brain, how you could ex- understand when, why, when the, what happens when things go wrong in terms of people ex- people's experiences, people's behavior. And I wrote this book because I couldn't find anything. In all the years I've been sort of studying brains and teaching people about brains, I couldn't find anything that wasn't either too really, really low level and you just had to have a degree in neuroscience to already understand it, or something that was just too general. Um, Now, I think Oliver Sacks' book about the man who mistook his wife for a hat is a really good example of something that's very general and really engaging and done well. But there's, there's not that I wanted something kind of in between. So I wrote the book I've always wanted to be able to tell people to come by. That's what they say. They tell us to do. They're like, write the book that you want to read. So, um, so is it the case that what you're talking about in terms of wanting to understand why the brain makes us do the things we do, isn't this sort of like a new thing that we're exploring? I mean, you hear about this all the time. I hear about it all the time now, and I don't, like 10 years ago, I never heard 
about this. I never heard about neuroscientists. It just didn't exist. Mm. So what's happened? What's happened in the last, well, probably about the last 20 years is that we've developed the techniques for really being able to ask interesting questions about people's experiences and people's behavior by looking at intact brains doing their jobs. And that is pretty recent up until, well, sort of, you know, yeah, the, the late 1990s. If you wanted to understand what was going on in somebody's brain, the main way that that was done was actually by working with people for whom things had gone wrong. So they've right. had a stroke or they've had a head injury. And, you know, again, the man who mistook his wife for a hat is a very good introduction to that world because people's experiences can be sort of stunning. They might have complete amnesia. They can't remember anything. They think they're still 23 years old and, in fact, they're 70. Or they they can't talk anymore or they can't recognize people by their faces. So it's, it's a very important area of science and that hasn't stopped. But what that's harder to do is to extrapolate from that into understanding how the, the intact brain works normally. And we develop these techniques called things like functional magnetic resonance imaging that let us mm -hmm. take photographs of the brain in action. And that's really exploded our understanding. And it's also kind of increased the cultural interest in this area. I, I, I like to, a bit like genetics was in the 1990s, neuroscience is now. It's the way we think about explaining ourselves is by thinking about brains. That's right. Exactly. So we're, we're constantly now like, oh, this sort of thing. One thing when you're talking about the man who mistook his wife for a hat, or you're talking about someone that's 70 that think there's 23. One of the most fascinating things in your book, I recall, is people that have left side blindness. Tell, tell, tell the listeners what this is. This was just stunning. It's, it's really, it's quite extraordinary when you encounter it. It's called left neglect, and it happens after damage to the right side of the brain. And it, people can see and hear things on that left side of the world. It's just they tend to ignore them. They behave as if they're not there. So the classic example would be if a man was shaving, he might shave only the right side of his face in the mirror and just ignore the left side that he can't, he's, he's just not, he's behaving like it's not there. Or you might eat only uh, half the food on your plate. Um, or you could draw a picture, you only draw half of the thing that you're drawing. It's, it's, it's a problem of attention. It's like your your brain is actually it feels effortless, but in your in its normal function, your brain is actually kind of paying attention out there to what's going on in the world, over and above the sensations coming in from it. You're actually sending you know your attention off into these different areas of space, and that does seem to operate differently across the two sides of space, such that the attentional system in your the right side of your brain is. Is, pick, is is directed towards the stuff that's happening in the left side of space. And if you damage that, you're only left with the attentional system from the left side of the brain. And that seems to be really focused. So it's kind of really pulling your attention over to the right. So you ignore the left because you're really focusing everything over at the right. And that's probably because we are mostly right-handed if you, the, the vast majority, like 97% like of people do things with their right hand and it seems the attentional system that drives that is really, really focused and really strong. So if you, if you, you're in left neglect, you're seeing that run away in action. And it does seem to be that the opposite is also true in that people who are left-handed are less likely to get left neglect if they have a stroke. So there's a, there's a weird advantage there to left-handedness. I have a lot of left-handed people in my family and including um, my, my, my daughter's father's left-handed and my husband's uh, left-handed and my brother's left-handed. And I've always found left-handed people to be 
how do I say this, more coordinated, first of all. And maybe that's because they have to be because the world is made for right-handed people. Mm. But they sort of approach, it's obviously an approach I like. I keep being drawn <laughs> to people that are <laughs> left-handed. It is, it, one of the things people have always struggled to explain why left-handed people exist is it, and one of the things that people thought for very many years is that because for most people, language lives, lives in the left side of your brain. Um, and people thought, well, maybe that's switched over. Maybe your, your handedness is kind of following where your, where language lives. Most people have got language on the left and then that's kind of driving them to be right-handed. Remember things have crossed over. But it turns out the vast majority of left-handed, left-handed people also have language in the left side of the brain. It, it's not got anything to do with language. It seems to be more to do with this, the way that you pay attention to the world. That's what seems to be switched over, driving you to the left or driving you to the right. And most for right-handers, that's pushing you over to the right-hand side. The focus is over to the right. Um, and that's, that, I think, I think it helps us think about left-handedness in a slightly different way. It's not that something's gone wrong with language. It's more about how you, literally how you see the world. Right. I, I guess that's what I find attractive. You said mm. something. I think this is a quote. I, I wrote it down. I hope I got it directly. It's in chapter four. Um, you put it, you, which the name of the chapter is, how do we know what we know about the world? And is there an us? Which is fascinating. I want to talk about that. But you said everything we experience is just the brain's best guess about what is out there, which is amazing. I mean, you would think if before I read your book, I would think like, well, we have building blocks, you know, we're, we're born with certain things and we learn certain things and then they're in there and they're embedded and sure they get knocked around a little later, sure, with age or Alzheimer's. I want to talk about that a little bit too. But in fact, you're positing that like every experience we have, we're just basically kind of guessing from the, from the information that's in front of us at that moment. Absolutely. Everything that you said is true. We are born caring about some things. Babies are born caring about faces. That as soon as they open their eyes, they're interested in looking at faces. And your perceptual systems are changed by how and where you grow up. Your brain will be different if you grow up learning to read, for example. But on, to, to the, on an operational level, on a day-to-day -day moment, everything that you're experiencing is still your brain's interpretation based on all that developmental experience, but it's still your brain's interpretation of what's likely to be going on out there. And sometimes, well, most of the time, you don't notice that because it's it's fitting. It all glues together. You don't suddenly fall down a hole you didn't see was there. You know, it, everything's kind of making sense. But every so often, you run into something where you realize, actually, you can see the guess in operation. If you remember people going mad about the, that dress, was it black and gold? Was it white and blue? Yeah, yeah. That was an example of actually people's brains making different assumptions. I never, I, I came to that very late. And when I saw it, I don't even remember what I saw, but I do find just the phenomena of that kind of interesting. And I don't, I didn't look more deeply enough into it. What, what is that? Do you know? It, it seems to come down to people's brains making two different kinds of assumptions about the lighting conditions that the dress was in. So if you assume that the, if your brain just guessed, okay, because it was just a picture of the dress, you couldn't see right. anything else. And if your brain made an assumption that the, that the dress is in bright sunlight, and it was not a decision that you make, that's your brain just right. going, okay, this is where we're going with this. Then you saw it one way. I think you were more likely to see it as white and blue. And if your brain was making an assumption that actually it was in uh, artificial light and quite shaded, you went in the other direction. So it's, uh, 
And that's an example of the guessing game at work. Your brain doesn't have all the information. It can't see everything about that horrible dress but it, and the space that it's in. So it's pushing you one way or the other without you even realising. And then you end up with these very different experiences. And people are like, I can't understand how someone can see it differently. But it's all, all the time, that's, that's possible. It's just most of the time our brains are making the same assumptions. Um, one thing that I loved, I mean, besides I really, really enjoyed your book, um, you said here, in a, right in the right in the in chapter one, why are you still you? Why are you still you? Um, every ten years or so, you have a whole new body. The cells in the lenses of your eyes are with you for life, which I find amazing because they say you know the eyes are the window of the soul and all that, right? Um, and so are the nerve cells, neurons in your central nervous system. But you change all your cells in the lining of your gut every two to four days, and your red blood cells every four months, and you and remain the same person. If you switched up all your neurons, you would be a whole new person. What I find so exciting about this is I love change, right? Mm. So you're you're constantly changing. And I, I wondered one thing that I thought here, besides I really do want to hear about the lenses of the eyes and why your eye lenses don't change, is if you change up your blood cells or your red blood cells every four months, what what impact does this have on healing? I mean- you can get some like weird blood disease, but oh hey, I clear I cleared myself out of it. I mean, does this is this possible? <laughs> I, I think it has a lot. It has a lot to do with the fact that your body is constantly healing. You one of the reasons for this cycle of of growth and change is that, put it very crudely, parts of the body that do a lot of work they tend to change over very very quickly. We'll come back to brains and eyes in a second. So that's why the lining of your gut or the lining of your mouth changes so fast because it's, it's, it's continuously being eroded and you need to replace it. You need that for it to be healthy. It needs to be changed. The same for the red blood cells. They, they're doing a lot of work and they get dinged about a lot moving around the body continuously. They are moving the whole time. So again, they're getting renewed. It's, it's a, any one blood cell gets renewed every 40 days. You don't get a whole new set of blood all at once every 40 days. Right, 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 right. Um, and it's part of what can go wrong with things like cancer is when that regrowth profile go, goes wrong because you've okay. always got this pattern of change. So it's really helping you, but it's also a risk factor. It's one of the ways that problems can start to creep in if, if that growth, that regrowth goes, goes wrong or is triggered by a, by a virus or something to behave differently. So yeah, let's talk about the eye cells. Why why would your eye cells stay the same? It's the it's really peculiar to think about this, but if you look inside somebody's eye, the the dark area when you're looking directly into somebody's eyes, that's it's called the pupil and it's like the lens of a camera. But like the lens of a camera, it has glass in it. It's not a hole. It's got this it's got this lens behind it. And the lens isn't like the lens of a camera and solid. It's actually flexible. You can, when you focus at something very close up or you look far away, your the muscles around that lens are stretching it out or making it squish in so that the light is focused differently into your eye, just like focusing a camera. But there's still a bit of biological living material. It looks like a piece of glass, but it's alive. And it's alive because it's been grown by the cells in the in the lens itself. And I think one of the reasons why once it's grown, it does not change is because it doesn't need to. Your eyes and your ears are actually bro grown. When you're born with them, they, they pretty much don't change. That's why babies have huge eyes. That's why they have huge eyes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they also, it's, if you think about it, 
as soon as you are awake, you are using your eyes the whole time. You're moving them around. You're seeing, you know, you're, one of the main ways that you explore the world is through your eyes. And therefore, you can't have a period where that lens is not functional. So I isn't, think that's why it's there for life. Isn't it the case that people have their lenses replaced? You can, you can absolutely. Yeah. Or you can have cataracts removed from them. You can do that. And it's uh, because it is a, it's a bit of beautiful biological machinery, it is more, um, you know, kind of uh, suitable for treating like a, like a physical lens and replacing. Um, I, was, I was reading your CV and I loved this so much. And I'd like you to talk about it a little bit on your CV. It said, I'm also interested in the expression of emotion in the voice, especially laughter. Yes. Let's talk about laughter for a second. Um, there's just so many, you know, ways you can you can laugh because you're nervous. You can laugh because something's uproarious. You can laugh because you're in love. You can laugh. Mm. So let's talk about laughter for a minute. What is your fascination? Um, well, it it's it's a really interesting area in because no, literally nobody studies it. Charles Darwin wrote a lot about laughter when he wrote about the expression of emotions in humans and other animals, and then. We sort of ignored that for the next 150 years. And a lot of other stuff he wrote about, like fear and anger and disgust, there's masses of research into. And Wait, animals laugh? They do. They do laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an old behavior than us. So rat, other, other apes laugh, and obviously we're apes, but if you tickle a baby chimpanzee or a baby orangutan, they laugh, and it sounds very recognizably like our laughter. They kind of laugh. We, are, we laugh on an exhalation, ha, ha, ha. They laugh by exhaling and inhaling, so they go kind of ha, he, 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 he. But it sounds a bit like Muttley, if you remember Muttley. But it's, it sounds like laughter. It's very recognisably laughter. But it turns out that um, rats also laugh. There was a fantastic American scientist called Panksepp who tickled rats and they make this very high-pitched squeak when they're laughing. It doesn't sound like laughter. But it seems- and now we come to the end of the free portion of this author interview um to get the full fig go on over and become a paid subscriber uh to smoke them if you got them you will then get all of the full episodes with sarah heppola and myself as well as the extras we're bringing you including new author interview series and just some other treats that we give you all week so again become a paid subscriber that's uh smoke there's a link here too in the show notes and we'll see you there thanks <laughs>